Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here in verse 11, Peter, he uses some maybe familiar words to us, that those words sojourner and a pilgrim, right, and an alien, if you would. If you remember going through Hebrews, we use those same words. The author of Hebrews, many people believe it's Paul, he uses those same words. And back then I talked about my old friend Kenta. Don't know if some of you guys remember him or not. I met him serving at a camp in Headwaters, Virginia, and he was from Japan, full-blown Japanese guy in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, right? I don't even know how he got there. I don't know if he knows how he got there, which is a little bit worrisome, right? But uh, Kenta was not from around here, definitely was not from Headwaters, Virginia, right? Headwaters, Virginia, they have more cows in their county than they do people. And uh, he just definitely was not from around there. He spoke with a huge accent. I spoke about how he looked at some of the Hispanic women from Miami, and he says, they have so much hair on their face, right? He was not from around <laughs> Miami. He was not from around these parts. Uh, he came once, and he spent time in my house, and my mom said, what does he have for breakfast? My mom's so hospitable. What does he like for breakfast? And I, go, I don't know. He drank black coffee every morning for breakfast. He goes, I'm going to fix him a Japanese breakfast. So she got some white rice and some, like, dried fish and this, like, black paste. And I was like, what in the world is this, right? But when he saw it, he was like in heaven. It was like he was at home again. So he sat in his chair, uh, Indian style, or I guess Japanese style would be the right term, right? And he got all the stuff, threw it in a bowl, and he just went to town. He was not from here. He's not from Miami. He's not from the U.S. And his actions didn't change. His behavior didn't change. And right when he went back to Japan, he acted the same way. And now as Peter is looking to us, he's reminding us that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We may have homes here, but our citizenship is not from around here. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you remember the few verses before that, right, he said that we were a royal priesthood, that our actions, our conduct, our morals should look nothing like this world. In Hebrews, it spoke of Abraham and Moses and how they were focused on the world, on the city whose builder and maker is God, and that is what our focus is supposed to be. Again, Peter is not begging us that we would be sojourners. Peter's not begging us that we would be pilgrims. He's saying, no, because you are a sojourner, because you are a pilgrim, I'm begging you to abstain from fleshly lusts. That word abstain, it's to resist the temptation. Resist the temptation from even the lust of these fleshly desires. He's not even saying resist actually doing them. He's saying resist even thinking about them, even allowing them to spend time within your mind. If you remember James chapter 1, verse 15, James tells us when this lust, right, when this desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You guys know it. So, Peter here, knowing what James wrote, right, maybe, maybe not, but we know the Holy Spirit, he's teaching all these people, writing through all these people. Peter, knowing that sin, when it's fully blown, brings death, he's saying, don't even get to that point. Abstain from even allowing the lust to take root in your mind and in your heart. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Going to take a little bit of a, a detour here. And here in Galatians, Paul will speak to us of the differences of walking in the Spirit 
or walking in the flesh. And there's a great warning to us. Here he's going to tell us the actual works of the flesh. And we're going to go through that. Be reminded, Peter is saying to abstain from even the lust of the desires of the flesh. But here in Galatians chapter 5, I encourage you, man, when you get home, read all of Galatians 5. But let's just look at verse 16. It tells us, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, sometimes I mention that God has me in this position because I'm in the remedial class when it comes to reading God's word and understanding it. Maybe you guys use those words all the time, like revelries and envies, right, and uncleanness and lewdness. But I had to dig a little bit deeper so I could really understand what's going on here. There's basically three different groups of sins here. The first one is sexual sins. So the very first one is adultery, and that's Sex between a married person and someone other than their spouse. Adultery. Sex with a married person and someone other than their spouse. That's not in some of the ancient manuscripts. It is in some others. Maybe your Bible doesn't have adultery. But the next word, it covers everything when it has to do with sexual immorality. The next word is fornication, which is the Greek word pornea, where we get our word pornography. And it's speaking of sexual immorality in a broad sense. It's speaking of sex before and outside of the God-ordained marriage of one man and one woman, right? And we have to remember, in this day and age, when Paul's writing to this church, people would literally worship their God. Hey, I'm going to a worship service. It didn't mean I'm coming to church to sing and go to a Bible study. It meant I'm going to sleep with a temple prostitute. Sexual immorality was rampant in the days of Paul. So for Paul to tell people, hey, stay away from sex was foreign to them because it was all over their world. Families in Romans times, men would have one woman to bear children, one woman for sex and intimacy and pleasure, and another woman that they would go out with to the dinner and to the parties. And this is the church. These are the people Paul says to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Again, it was counterculture, completely counterculture. The next word there, uncleanness, it's not just speaking of showers, right? It's everything that's opposite to purity. It's immodesty, indecency, right? It's oftentimes our speech, how we speak with innuendos and double meanings, right? The middle school boys that you're having a normal conversation and yet they're in the corner all giggling because they have an unclean mind. Tells us stay away from those things. 
That word lewdness, it means licentiousness. And if you're me and that just confused you even more, what it really means is that you're ready to sin at any time. You have no sense of shame. You have no sense of embarrassment. But instead, you are flaunting your sin so that you can get a shock out of other people from the pride and how much you're putting your sin out there. Again, we are to not even stay away from the works of the flesh, but we're to stay away from even the lusts of the works of the flesh. We should even stay away from the lusts of sexual sin and immorality. The next two are religious sins. And again, we fall prey to everything on this list, but the next sins are religious sins. The first one there is idolatry, and that's worshiping any God except the God and Jesus Christ of the Bible. Worshiping any God outside of the God and Jesus Christ of the Bible. And some of us here may say, eh, I don't struggle with that whatsoever, right? Again, I've been walking a little bit more around my house and I never realized how many idols, right? And little houses were in front of the houses, right? Never realized that before. But oftentimes Christians or maybe people are just learning about God more and more, they create a God of their own. They create a Jesus of their own. He's a Jesus of their own creation, their own opinion, and naturally always of their own comfort. Right? Their Jesus agrees with their lifestyle. Their Jesus agrees with their sins. Their Jesus says it's not that bad. And that is idolatry. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. The next word is sorcery, right? I don't know if any of you are really into sorcery, right? Any of you go at home and you're doing some hocus pocus and stuff like that, right? And again, it is. It truly is the worship of the occult and the spiritual powers apart from God. Anytime, we're in Miami. Anytime I'm at a grocery store and I see someone in all white. The other day I was in, uh, I was in TJ Maxx with Amanda and I saw a lady dressed in all white and all the clothes she had in her hand were in all white. So, man, I started praying for her. And, man, if you're worshiping the occult or trying to get spiritual powers apart from God, this is sinful. But the word in the Greek here is the word pharmakia, which is where we get our word pharmacy. And, again, this is any kind of drug, potion, or spells. And if you're honest, we struggle much more with the drugs than with the potions or spells. Because drugs open us up to spiritual forces of darkness that's just what drugs do they dumb us down the holy spirit sharpens us the fruit of the spirit sharpens us where now it even gives us a sixth sense right we all become like spider men and women and now we're given another sense from god and we say man my spirit something's off with this man Throughout this week, I was thinking about different people and sure enough, talked to them on the phone and man, it was God reminding me to pray for them. Drugs do the opposite. They dumb us down and when we're dumbed down, we're more open to spiritual forces of darkness. The next set is, I call them the one another sins. One another sins. Sins that affect one another. Throughout the gospel, Jesus gives us one another's, right? Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another. So these are the one another sins. The first one is hatred. And hatred, it's an attitude of the heart. It's a very strong dislike for someone. And it's truly the inner motivation that leads to the next sins on this list. 
It's an attitude of the heart when we just have a hatred, a dislike for a certain person or a certain group of individuals. And there is no room for this in the body of Christ. Right? Again, Peter, he said we are a chosen, right, a race, a royal priesthood that once we come into the body of Christ, we're Christians. That's our race, right? Again, there's only one race, the human race. But after that, there's saved and unsaved. There's family and there's mission field. That's how we should look at this world. We should not judge anyone based on the melanin of their skin or their culture or their background of their lives. We have no room to have hatred within our hearts. The next word is the word contentions. That's that word strife. It's that person that's combative, always wanting to argue, right? Always wanting to fight. You say a couple words, you slip up on one word, and they always want to point how you messed up on that one word, right? Oftentimes in Scripture, it's associated with envy. The next word is jealousies, the desire to have what someone else has. You see someone else have it, so now all of a sudden you want it. It can get worse than that, though. Next one is outbursts of wrath. That's having a short temper, quick rage, quick to boil, right? As believers, we shouldn't be like that. I think uh, Ariel was talking about it on Thursday. Shout out to God's Way Radio, right? Or uh, I think it was yesterday talking to Pastor Raz, and he talked about long suffering. How that's a fruit of the Spirit, right? I'd never heard anyone praying for that fruit of the Spirit. Lord, just give me long suffering. This is the exact opposite. This is a quick temper. The next one is selfish ambition. It's a desire to put oneself forward. I want to be in front of everybody else. I want to be number one. The scary thing with this word in the Greek is it started off as a good word and then it became a word for politicians. Someone running for office, they would call it the same word in the Greek, selfish ambition. It's the person who has no concept of what service really means. It's the person who always asks, what's in it for me? That's what selfish ambition is. In James chapter 3, verse 16, James tells us where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Where there's envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil are there. Again, if we are a Christian, we should be following Jesus. And we know Jesus did not put himself as number one in any room, right? took on the form of a bondservant. Next word is dissensions, where we get our word divisions from. It's the people that like to stand apart. William Barclay, he said, it's a society where the members fly apart instead of coming together. Again, when we speak with someone, we shouldn't be looking for all our differences. We should be looking for those things that bring us together. Within church, that might get myself into trouble here, but these are the people who don't want to be a part of the group activity. Not because they're hurt, not because physically they can't do it, because they want to be apart from the group activity so that they can mock those who are a part of the group activity. Again, maybe you know I'm talking about, maybe you don't. Romans 16 verse 17, Paul warns us about people like this. To the point that he tells us, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. 
These are the people that we are to avoid biblically. Not the people that annoy us. Not the people that bother us. The people who cause division within church, you should not give them the time of day. So that they realize, man, why does nobody in church want to talk to me? And if they really ask, you say, man, I love you. But everywhere, every time you go to church, you create division. Everybody's trying to do something and you're trying to divide. You're trying to create offenses within church. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3, Paul would tell the church of Corinth, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? If we are looking to divide the church of Christ, you are not living a spirit-filled life. You are living a carnal life. That was 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and Romans 16, verse 17. The next word in Galatians 5 is that word heresies. And oftentimes, me, myself included, heresy, we think of, right, taking God's word out of context, saying something crazy, something unbiblical. But heresy here in the Greek, it's wrongfully dividing over opinions. Barclay, he says, there's a difference, there's all the difference in the world between believing that we are right and believing that everyone else is wrong. There's a big difference there. We as believers, we should believe, hey, we're right. We have the biblical truths. We're following God's word. But there's another thing altogether where the pride of Saul in the Bible where he believed everyone else was wrong. And as believers, that should not be our heart. The next word is envy. That's someone who's just mad at other people's happiness. They see someone else happy and right, they're just like grilling their teeth, right? They see someone else growing in life. They got married, and it's just more and more angry. In the Greek, that's where we get the words shrivel up and wither away. You're just envious. It's not even that you just want what they have. You want to see them die and have what they have, right? That should not be us. Finally, there in that group of the one another's is the word murders, right? And many of us say, I don't struggle with that one, Zach. I'm good, right? I'm clean. It's the intentional and unlawful taking of another human life. But again, if we're reminded in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus tells us, hey, you've heard it of old that you should not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 1 John chapter 3, 15 and 16 he warns us, whoever hates his brother, again, coming back to the body of Christ, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the special love that we should have between the body of Christ. On that family dinner night, you should be giving the biggest piece of lasagna to the other person, right? That's the heart that we should have. The last two, they're called the social sins. Sins that we do amongst others, and sometimes we even do this by ourselves. But the first one is drunkenness. This should be nowhere near the body of Christ, the family of Christ. Being under the influence of alcohol, impaired in any way by drink. As well as drinking with the intention or purpose of becoming impaired. I just had a tough day at work, so I need to take the edge off of work. I had a rough time with my spouse, so I just need to cool off and chillax a little bit. That is sinful. 
It's the condition of having physical or mental control diminished by the effects of alcohol or drugs. It should be nowhere near the body of Christ. Let's turn to Romans 13 real quick. We'll turn there. And Paul, he told the church in Rome very specifically that, hey, Jesus is coming at any moment. His return is coming closer and closer. And now in view of his coming return, these are the things we should do and the things we should not do. There in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, he tells us, and do this. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off right those dirty clothes. Throw away those dirty clothes. Cast off those works of darkness. And now put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Again, family, we should throw this far away from us. We should not even be lusting after this. And when we do, again, take it to the Lord. The last word there in Galatians chapter 5 is the word revelries. And this is unrestrained partying. That's what he says, unrestrained partying. In the Greek, a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows. Right? Sounds nice there in the Old English. Who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music. Right? So be careful next time you go to La Carreta to bang some pants and drugs, right? Be careful with that. No, that's not what he's talking about there. But again, we shouldn't be just gathering at parties to get plastered or to see other people get plastered. We should throw all of this far, far, far away from us. We go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, the context of what we're reading, he tells us to abstain abstain from these fleshly lusts. Stay away from these things, right? Why should we stay away from them? Because God is a buzzkill. Because as God's writing the Ten Commandments, He's saying, how can I make life as miserable and boring for them as possible? No. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is because there in chapter 2, verse 11, it is because they war against the soul. These things that you are lusting after want to kill you. They want to actively destroy you. And because God cares about us, because Jesus loves us like no one else, because Peter loved this church, he's telling him, guys, you got to stop doing this. Again, no believer grows in their walk with God as a result of backsliding. Again, I've spoken to many backsliders. I was once a backslider. I never said, oh, thank you, Lord, that I fell to those sexual sins. I'm so blessed that I'm a hypocrite and committing these one another sins. God is blessing my life so much more than ever. I'm able to share the gospel more than ever because I'm constantly living in social sin. No believer ever says that because these things wage war against our souls. Again, Parents here, right? Dads, moms. Imagine your teenage son or daughter brings a new boy or girl from school, right? 
they look a little bit different. They don't really speak English, right? And say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I work with the Taliban. What? Honey, yeah, this guy's not coming to dinner anymore, right? Oh, don't worry. My, my new girlfriend, she's just a Russian spy. That's all. That's all right, Dad, right? She's just a, a Chinese agent, right? Don't worry about it, Mom. They're totally cool, right? They're totally cool with me, right? We would say no because these agencies are waging war against our nation. And yet when we play with sin, when we play with these lusts of the flesh, we are doing the very same thing. Hey, you that want to kill me and destroy me, hey, let's hang out together. Let's have a ball. Let's hang out. And again, our flesh tries to make room for some of these things, right? So it says no drunkenness, but then what's okay, right? I have a high tolerance for alcohol. You just don't know exactly. Man, you pray. But if you're drinking with the intention and the hope of becoming impaired, it's sin. It's lust, right? Zach, what about drugs? What about marijuana, right? It's illegal in a bunch of states, don't you know? God made it. It has to be good, right? There's lots of things that God made that people aren't asking if they can eat or consume, right? There's a ton of gravel and asphalt out there. God made that too, but Noah's like, can I just eat a little bit of asphalt, right? It'll help me relax so much more, right? Again, these things wage war against our soul. The only possession that we have that lasts for all of eternity, these things want to kill it and destroy it. So we should abstain from these things. Verse 12 Why should we abstain from these things? First and foremost, they wage war against our souls. These things are actively trying to kill us. The next reason why is because our conduct should be honorable amongst the Gentiles. Our lifestyle, our family, our job, our work should be honorable amongst the Gentiles. Because they will speak against us as evildoers, but through our good works which they observe, hopefully, right, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, family, how can we tell unbelievers of the transforming work and power of Jesus Christ when we're struggling with the same sins for weeks and months and years of our lives? How can I go to an unbeliever and say, man, God wants to transform your life. But I've been struggling with pornography for the past 10 years. It's hypocrisy, right? How are you telling me that it can be transforming for my life, but yet you're in it and it's not yet transforming for your life? As believers, we should live according to that lifestyle of that royal priesthood. We should throw off these lusts like dirty clothes. And man, if you're here and you feel condemned, do not condemn yourself. That's not going to do anything. Instead, turn to Jesus Christ. Instead, confess your sins to the Lord. Confess your sins to someone else. And God will forgive you. God will heal you. And God will restore you and use you as a mighty example of Jesus Christ. I've been there. I myself have been that hypocrite working at a place, saying I go to church, saying I'm a Christian, starting to cuss like them, starting to act like them, starting to sleep around like them. I was once there. But once God radically changed my life, I went to each person that was my friend, and I said, I am sorry that I've been a bad example as a Christian. Will you forgive me? Here's my testimony. This is my story. This is my life. And for some of them, I had to tell them, hey, 
unless you want to talk about Jesus or the Bible, I can't hang out with you anymore. Because your life and what you're chasing after is the exact opposite of what I'm chasing after. So I can't just hang out with you for fun. But if you ever want to talk about Jesus, if you ever want to talk about the Bible, I'm here for you. That's my life. That's my life story. So that hopefully one day by my good works, they will be able to glorify God in that day of visitation. One chapter over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 17 Peter tells the church, Peter tells us, hey, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil again there's some people here in our church that they were once those mocking Christianity mocking church and their spouse will go to church and that's your church those are your people that's your but then once they got sick once something happened in the house and then it was God's people taking care of them bringing them food sharing the love of Christ with them, sooner or later, your church became our church. Sooner or later, your God became our God. And again, by our good works, right, they are going to call us evildoers, right? They are going to call us crazy and insane. But through our actions, hopefully one day they will glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the day of judgment. The hope, the prayer is that through our good works, through our actions, through our lifestyle, our conduct, through the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives, one day they will be saved. That word day of visitation, it comes from Isaiah chapter 10 verse 3. And Isaiah, there's a big warning, says, what will you do in the day of visitation? What will you do in that day of punishment and the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? Again, Peter is telling us that by our heavenly conduct as kings, as queens, as priests, as aliens, and as sojourners, we may lead others to salvation. Even though we may spend the season of them mocking us and even blaming us as evildoers. is with this same mindset of being able to win others to Christ that in verse 13 he tells us, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. These are the verses right now where if we weren't teaching verse by verse and I was just a pastor in my flesh, I would stay far away from these scriptures, right? But again, we need to be reminded of the author first, right? Do you remember the Peter of the Gospels? Does this sound like the Peter of the Gospels, right? Peter was always ready for a fight. Peter was always ready to stick it to the man and the Roman authority. Peter was always asking Jesus, Lord, when are you going to start your reign? When is your kingdom coming, right? Peter, he was quick to whip out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. 
Again, the heart here is that unbelievers would observe our good works even to our government and our governing officials and that they would be brought to Jesus Christ. The true context here is Peter's writing to a church that's mostly made up of Jewish people. And in this day and age, Jewish people especially had a problem submitting to any ruler who was not Jewish. And the Roman Empire definitely was not Jewish, right? And it was not a democracy, was not like the U.S. of A., nor was it a friend to Christians. They were being slaughtered. Nero was doing all sorts of atrocities to Christians. Adam Clark, he says, the meaning of St. Peter appears to be this, that the Jews thought it was unlawful to obey any ruler that was not from the own stock of Israel. And the apostle tells them that they should obey their civil magistrate let him be of whatever stock he may, Jew or Gentile, and let him exercise the government in whatsoever form. And this is difficult for us to obey and realize in this time. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13 real quick. We'll run there and I'll start reading here. Truly is one of the best scriptures with God giving us the reason and the definition of government. Romans chapter 13 We'll just read through verse 1 through 7. It says, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Wherefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror of good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Here's where we start thinking, right? Wait, what? Right, this is God's definition of what government should really look like. We continue verse 4. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Again, government, as designed by God, was made and created to punish evil and reward good. And we should submit to our government. We should submit to our authorities. I have two words to tell you, right, that'll bust each and every one of us. Speed limit, right? We try to take it to our mind to like the 20th degree. What? I got to obey the government. Let's just go with the simple ones, right? Speed limit, for some Christians, it's marriage license. I married before God. Why? It's just a piece of paper. I don't got to do that. No. If it's just a piece of paper before you get married, it's just going to be a piece of paper after you get married, right? But you have to do that. Here's another one. Taxes, right? Oh, no. I just work under the table, right? That's all I do. No, unless you're like scratching the gum off the table, that's illegal. That's not right. Taxes, right? We have a lot of different accountants here. If you make over $600 from one person... Got to pay taxes. Got to put it under the paperwork, right? Another word, right? Car insurance in Miami, right? Auto insurance. We got to listen to these different rules that God has appointed government to be there to protect us. Again, in Scripture, even tyranny 
is better than anarchy. Even tyranny is better than anarchy. A.R. Fawcett, he says, tyranny harasses many, but anarchy overwhelms the whole state. Again, for us family, the only justifiable exception is in cases where obedience to the earthly king plainly involves disobedience to the express command of the king of kings. And that's where now we have to say, right, as in Acts 4, 19 and 20, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you be the judge. Right? That's what we have to ask. Is what our government asking us to do, does it go against the king of kings? The God who has put government there. Again, remember the whole point and context of this is to glorify and honor God. And if it gets to a point where being obedient to the government is not honoring and not glorifying and disobeying the commands of God, that's where we must disobey the government. And the Bible, as Romans 13, as 1 Peter chapter 2, as there's other portions in Scripture that remind us to obey the government, there's plenty of Scriptures that God really speaks in great ways of people who disobeyed the government. The midwives of Pharaoh, they disobeyed Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. Moses' parents disobeyed Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 2. Rahab disobeyed the people of Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. The Israelites disobeyed King Saul and wanting to kill his own son in 1 Samuel 14. Obadiah disobeyed Queen Jezebel and hid the prophets of God in 1 Kings 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel disobeyed King Darius in Daniel chapter 6. And Peter and John disobeyed the religious authorities in Acts chapter 4 like we just read. The Bible gives us a great balance of this. So that we would fear God above all and fear and listen to our governing authorities. Again, Peter, he tells us, hey, submit to the governing authorities. They were killing Christians. They were putting them to death. But at the end of the day... Almost all the disciples were put to death because they disobeyed the governing authorities. That's the interesting thing here. Peter, he saw his wife crucified and then was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to suffer the same death as his Savior and King. Peter was beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was pierced through with spears. Philip was hung, Matthew was stabbed to death, James was beheaded, the other James was sawn in two, Thaddeus was pierced with arrows, and Bartholomew was flayed alive. Again, 11 of the disciples were all put to death for disobeying the governing rulers and authorities. But this does not give us an excuse to be disobedient just for the sake of being disobedient. But again, those different rules and regulations... Got to obey. Got to obey. God put them there. We don't want people to say, man, how can I follow Jesus in you? You don't follow anyone. You don't submit to anyone or any authority. Again, verse 15, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, he tells us, hey, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence, that's the word to muzzle the mouths of the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, which is wickedness or sin, but use that liberty to be a bondservant of God. Again, Peter's telling the church, he's telling us, use your freedom in Christ not to serve sin, not to serve wickedness, 
Not to see where the line of drunkenness is or the line of, right, what TV shows can I watch, what movies can I watch, what music can I listen to. Don't use your freedom in Christ to, to protect sin. Use your freedom in Christ to be a bond servant for God. Again, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. That should be our goal. That should be our focus, that we're submitted to Jesus. And as Jesus tells us to submit to government, we submit to government. Those days when Jesus tells us and things arise where we have to be disobedient, family, be disobedient to government. Got to follow the Lord. And very quickly, we're coming to a day and age where we're going to have to really pray and decide who are we going to follow, God or man. Verse 17, he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. There he's telling us, respect all people, love the brotherhood. That is to have a habitual, special love for the body of Christ. That is what we are to have, a habitual, special love for the body of Christ. The next one there is fear God. Again, it doesn't say fear the king. Peter didn't say fear the government. He says fear God. Have that respect, that reverence, and the godly fear for the only one that can kill both body and soul in hell for all of eternity. And finally, honor the king. Give the king the respect that is due to his name his position, and his authority. Verse 18 through 20, he tells the servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten? That's that word buffeted. Same word that Jesus was buffeted and beaten. He says, what credit is it if we're beaten for our faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. We may read this and say, okay, this has nothing to do with me. It's talking about slavery. No. For us, it's employees. Be submissive to your employers. We are to be submissive. We are to be respectful. Not just when our boss is good and great and holy. Pray for them. Thank God for them. Pray that they never change. But even if you have a terrible boss, be submissive to them. I remember I was working retail right after. It was the year after everything crashed. So it was the 07, 08, 09, one of those years. And our boss is coming to tell us, hey, these are the numbers from last year. Last year we sold a million dollars. We need to beat these numbers, right? Like, dude, it's just not possible, right? Half of Miami is for sale. Half of Miami is in loans, right? It's not going to happen. And again, need to still be submissive to our employers, even when they're not good. Again, if you get chewed out because you did a bad job, you did a bad job. Don't come to church and say, man, I got chewed out because I did a, a bad job and I stayed quiet because God filled me with his spirit. That's what Peter's saying here. You got chewed out because you did a bad job. And if you have humility, you should accept getting chewed out and say, okay, how can I do better next time? The holy thing is when you get chewed out because you were obedient to God. When you got chewed out because you didn't want to fudge the numbers. When you got chewed out because your employer wanted them to sleep with them. When you got chewed out because you weren't going to go to um, happy hour with the rest of the employees and employers. When you get chewed out for that, that is when God is going to bring you honor and glory. If you get chewed out because you're doing a bad job, man, just got to do a better job next time. That's basically what he's telling us. 
He tells us, follow the example of Jesus. For this you were called because Jesus also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Adam Clark, he says, he suffers, but not on an account of any evil that he had ever done or said. Indeed, and in word, he was immaculate. And yet he was exposed to suffering. As believers, expect the same. And when it comes, bear it in the same spirit. When it's our turn to go through suffering because we're being right before God, we are to bear it in the same way that Jesus bore it. Again, Peter is telling us that when we go through the injustice of being punished for doing right, think of how Jesus went through the injustice of being beaten, being put to death for being perfect. Verse 24 and 25, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we got to follow Christ's example. He went through more suffering than any of us will ever go through. He was more perfect than any of us will ever be. And yet he went through it as a lamb, right? That to the slaughter, just quiet. He went through all of it. So when we go through that, we should do the same thing. I was talking with Ken Graves. He told the church, hey, if I get arrested for having church, we're not going to fight. We're not going to all pull out our guns. I'm going to go away quietly. He's got to do his job, and I have to do mine. And we're going to show a good example to whatever police officer arrests me. That's what he said, right? It's funny. The sheriff is his friend. He's like begging him, hey, just arrest me. Just come and arrest me, right? But that's different, right? Verse 24 and 25, the focus of Jesus Christ. How he bore our sins. Right? How do we do when we get blamed for somebody else's wrong? Right? Do we ever handle that in a patient way? Especially with siblings, right? You start reprimanding one kid, they'll tell you real quick, I had nothing to do with it, right? But he, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's why God had to separate from Jesus. Because our God cannot dwell with sin. First time in all of history, first time in all of time where Jesus and God were not united because he bore my sin, because he bore our sin on his body in the tree, that we, just as Christ had to die on the cross, we are to be dead to our sins so that we might live for righteousness because by his stripes we've been healed. Again, we are dead to sins, family. Our debt and our guilt is paid for and gone. The only reason we may still have guilt in our sins is because we're being disobedient to how God sees us or we're still repeating those same sins over and over and over. Those sins, they're gone. That guilt is gone. It's been paid for by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now I am to live for righteousness. Just as he had to die for my sins, now I should look at my sins, look at those lusts of the flesh, 
as dead and gone and far from me. Charles Spurgeon, he says, He who bore my sins in his own body on the tree, he took all my debts and he paid them for me. And now I am dead to those debts. They have no power over me. I am dead to my sins. Christ suffered instead of me. I have nothing to do with them. They are gone as much as if they had never been committed. Again, family, that's how Christ looks at each and every one of us. That's how we as believers are to look at one another. Those sins were before Christ. Those sins you've come, you've repented. Hey, you're washed. You're brand new. Again, through the suffering of Jesus on the tree, our sins were taken from us. Because of Jesus' patience and endurance of his wrongful trial, his wrongful suffering, we are saved. So now whenever we go through wrongful trials, whenever we go through wrongful suffering, may we be able to take it and handle it as Jesus. Again, he is the shepherd. He is the overseer of our souls. Again, it's awesome. That's where we get the word pastor and bishop or overseer. It's here from 1 Peter chapter 2. 